Okay, so we're working our way through Paul's epistle called 2 Corinthians. We're in chapter 6. Today we're going to cover all of three verses. So we're increasing our pace. Um, Verses 3 through 5. And really what we're doing is covering the first third of a sentence. <laughs> it's a rather long sentence, but uh, and we'll cover the first third of it today and then go through the other parts later on. This is God's word. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonment, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. As Paul is engaged in the ministry of reconciliation that God had called him to as an apostle, He is exercising great care to put no obstacle in anyone's way. But rather he is striving to commend himself as a servant of God by the way that he lives. Jesus had warned, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. That's from Matthew 7. So how do you tell the difference between a true prophet and a false prophet? By their fruit, by their life. If there's no real change in a person's life, then there's no real faith in a person's life. Was Paul was eager to show that he was a true servant of Christ, not a false one. And so he was jealous to commend Christ by the way that he lived. And to commend himself as a true apostle of Christ. You see, as a pastor, if someone finds fault in my ministry, then it puts an obstacle in the way of them embracing the gospel that I preach. If my life reeks of pride, or hypocrisy, or cowardice, or greed or the fear of man, or any one of a number of things like that, worldly ambition, people will not listen to what I'm preaching. So the life of the servant of God must commend his message. It must match his message for his message to be believable. That's what Paul's talking about. And so the point is that as we preach with our lives so it must match up with our words 
Our lives need to match our testimony. We need God's Spirit, therefore, to work in us deeply so that our lives don't undermine the gospel that we're trying to commend to others. In Titus 2, 9 and 10, Paul exhorts bond servants to live their lives in such a way, quote, so that in everything they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Sadly, too many times the lives of professing believers do not adorn the gospel, but actually destroy the Christian testimony and give non-believers an excuse to push the message of Christ aside. May it not be true for us. So after Paul begins this new idea, he gives a list of 27 phrases or words which describe the context in which Paul is trying to live out the message. But don't worry, we're not going to cover all 27 this morning. The 27 are composed of three sublists of nine each. And we're going to cover the first sublist of nine today, this morning. And this list, this first group, focuses on Paul's commending the gospel by the way he endures suffering. By the way he endures troubles. So that's our topic today. Enduring difficulties Christianly so as to bear a good witness for Christ. This sublist of nine is actually comprised of three groups of three. And the first of these three little triplets is three general terms for troubles. Afflictions, hardships, calamities. The second triplet focuses on persecutions, beatings, imprisonments, riots. Or that's basically like when I'm stirring up a mob. And the, the third group of the three is three forms of bodily suffering. Labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. So we're going to look at each one of these triplets by, uh, by themselves. So the first one is the, the g- three general words for adversity. Afflictions, Hardships, distresses. Paul's gospel-commending lifestyle was lived out in the context of much suffering. Paul showed forth the glory of Christ in the manner in which he endured many afflictions. He actually gives us a list of his sufferings a few chapters later in chapter 11, verses 23 to 29. And we'll get to that probably in a few years. So often we think we could be happy. We think we could be strong Christians if only our circumstances would improve. If only my spouse were what he or she is supposed to be. If only I had a spouse. If only I could get a better job or 
get paid more money, or if only I didn't have these health problems. If only, if only, if only. You know, when things go the way we like them to go, it's easy to be happy. But that's not the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord is something only God can give. It's during hard times that joy and hope and peace and love stand out as unexplainable except by the power of the living God. Paul's life shows us that God's light can shine even in hardships. It is easy to have peace in our souls when everything is going the way we like it. But when turmoil comes, our tendency is to become anxious and disturbed or irritable. But we need the, the peace that passes human understanding. The peace that only comes from the Lord. The peace that comes from knowing Christ and his love and his trustworthiness and his goodness and his promises. The non-believer thinks he can be happy only if his circumstances change. But the believer walks in the knowledge that by God's grace he can have joy and freedom and a vibrant testimony even while he's experiencing troubles. In fact, the Christian knows that all of his troubles actually give him increased opportunity to witness to others and to glorify Christ. You see, if people can see that we have hope, even when our circumstances look bad, then they are much more likely to pay attention to our testimony about the Lord and the difference he makes in our lives. Every adversity, therefore, every adversity we experience gives us a platform from which we can proclaim the excellencies of the risen Christ who endured all things for the sake of his beloved. And that contentment makes the gospel real in the eyes of those watching us. Of course, we still have the flesh that's at war within us that wants us to react with anger, with self-pity, with denial, or with a hundred other wrong responses. But endurance in the face of afflictions and hardships and distresses is something that we can have only by Christ's work in us through his spirit. The second group of three have to do with persecutions, beatings, imprisonments, and riots or mobs. Few of us have ever experienced this kind of persecution before. But we see it in the book of Acts, and we hear about it from other countries in the world. That We see it in Acts that throughout Paul's ministry... He was, he stirred up a lot of opposition. He was often beaten, the first one of these three. He tells us in chapter 11, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. So he saw plenty of beatings. 
He was frequently imprisoned, we read in verse 23 of chapter 11. And numerous riots were stirred up against him. In fact, one commentator says, according to the Acts of the Apostles, there was scarcely a major center visited by Paul that did not sustain some social upheaval in the course of his ministry there. So this is just something that was a regular part of Paul's experience. And yet in all of this, Paul lived a life that was a splendid advertisement for the gospel that he was preaching. Like his Lord, he did not fight back, though he did flee a few times. He did not pay back evil for evil or insult for insult. Instead, he persevered in tribulation. He blessed those who were persecuting him. By God's power, he loved even those who were attacking him. He lived out the instructions he gave to others about how to respond to persecution. Like in Romans 12, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Perhaps the most splendid example of Paul's Christ-like response to persecution is found in Acts 16, in the story of the Philippian jailer. After Peter and I'm sorry, Paul and Silas had been beaten and thrown into prison, they were found praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And as it turns out, the jailer was also listening to them. And he became one of the first converts in that city, and indeed in all of Europe. Paul commended the gospel by his response to persecution. Now our persecution is much more mild than his. But if our response is like Paul's, as opposed to self-righteousness, self-pity, anger, fighting back, or fear then when we spread the good news of Christ, our lives will display what our mouths proclaim. The third triplet in this list of nine has to do with bodily distress. Labors, sleeplessness, and hunger. Now all of us know what it feels like to work extremely hard to the point of exhaustion and fatigue. And we know how easy it is to get irritable and unhappy when we're in that state of exhaustion. But when a person has joy, even in that state, and when a person loves others, even when they're completely wiped out, they really commend the gospel of Christ. And the same is true with sleeplessness. You know, we usually see each other on Sunday morning or other times after we've had a good night's sleep, a chance to wake up, take a shower, get something to eat, and get ready. But what are we like when the baby wakes up for the fourth time in the night? Or when we work the night shift and don't sleep for 24 hours or more at a time. And all of us know 
that when we are exhausted, we're more prone to be sinful. And the same thing when we're hungry. We all know what it's like to be hungry and, and not just have the feeling of hunger in our stomach, but to begin to feel weak and even lightheaded because we haven't eaten. And we know how very hard it is to be godly in those conditions. We know how easy it is to be self-centered in those circumstances. To grumble, to feel sorry for ourselves, to be grumpy. Paul commended the gospel by the way he behaved when experiencing this kind of affliction. He was not a man who was dependent on creature comforts for his happiness. He was dependent on the Lord. He also glorified God by his willingness to go into situations where he was likely to experience these kinds of things. Activities which were bound to result in difficulty and controversy and rejection and persecution. Paul was not a man who was dependent on everything around him going the way he wanted it to go. He didn't avoid situations which might make him uncomfortable or might be tiresome or difficult. He threw himself into ministry. He was always ready even to take risks to be inconvenienced, to go out of his comfort zone. So there's the Apostle Paul, and here's us. Are we ready to live the way Paul did? Few of us are. We need much help from the Lord in order to be able to be a good advertisement for Christ when we're exhausted or hungry or sick. You remember when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and his face glowed with the glory of God? Remember that amazing moment where people couldn't even look at him because he shone so brightly? Do you realize that that was after fasting for 40 days? Godly joy, love, and gratitude are not the fruits of eating and being well-rested. They are the fruits of the Holy Spirit. They are the fruits of being connected to God. That's the key to being this way. It's not making sure that everything in your life is as it should be. I'm not saying that it's wrong to have a schedule and to, to provide food for yourself and those things that's fine to strive for, but we can't be dependent on those things. Sufferings don't cause sin. They expose sin that's already in our hearts. Jesus went 40 days without food and still he didn't give in to temptation to sin. And though he had gone all night without sleep and had been whipped to within an inch of death, Though he was so exhausted that he collapsed under the weight of the cross, yet still he did not sin, but remained perfectly righteous in all that he said and even all that he thought. 
Brothers and sisters, we're not going to get there by trying hard to remain calm and in control when we're in distressing circumstances. We can't, we can't be patient. We can't be kind and gentle and joyful and loving when we're suffering by ourselves. Let me tell you what I think is the key. We need to see, the key is seeing what's really there. We need God to open our eyes to reality. And that's the the problem with suffering. Sufferings distract us from reality. Sufferings take our eyes off of the truth. And other things can take our eyes off of reality too, like success or praise. Christ in our lives, you see, is more powerful than hunger, sleepiness, exhaustion. More powerful than loneliness, rejection, even abuse. Christ is more powerful than these things. And he's also more powerful than worldly achievements and popularity and recognition. Christ, as I've said so many times, is always the big thing in our lives. And the problem is that we don't see that Christ is bigger than the things we're facing or the things that we're experiencing. You remember the disciples in the storm in Matthew 8. I think it's also in Mark 4. Jesus is asleep on a pillow, but they're sailing in a boat across the Sea of Galilee and a great storm arises and these weathered uh, sailors get to the point where they're despairing of life because it looks like they're going to, you know, be overwhelmed with the storm and be cast into the sea. And finally they wake up Jesus. Lord, don't you care that we're going to die? And Jesus gets up and he rebukes the storm and then he rebukes and he rebukes his disciples too. He says, where's your faith? And after, and th- at the end, they're all just standing in amazement because they realize, they've realized that Jesus is bigger than the storm. They were in the situation where the storm looked like it was the big thing. And this guy that was asleep on a pillow in the boat turned out that he was actually greater than the storm. And that's exactly what happens with us. Some storm rises up in our lives and we're just looking at the storm. And we've forgotten the guy that's on the bench there. Jesus. The same kind of thing happened a few chapters later in Matthew 14 where Peter was, wanted to walk on the water with Jesus and Jesus called him out and Peter started walking on the water. But then he began to notice the wind and the waves and he took his eyes off Jesus and he began to be frightened of the wind and the waves and he began to sink. What was Peter's problem. Peter's problem was not that Jesus wasn't big enough to help him. Not that the storm was something so great that it that he couldn't be rescued from it. The problem was Peter took his eyes off of Jesus. And that's what sufferings often cause us to do. If we ever had our eyes on Jesus in the first place. 
Sufferings distract us from Jesus and, and make us think that there's something else that's bigger than Jesus here in my circumstance. A lot of times we don't go to Jesus because we're just not desperate enough. We're still trying to find a way to solve our problem with our own human ingenuity or strength or determination. And Jesus is using the storms of of life, using the sufferings to drive us to him, to teach us to come, to teach us to rest. When Jesus rebuked those disciples in the time of the storm, you know, he's like, "What, what do you expect people to do who are about to die in a storm. You expect them to remain calm and, and uh, you know, what, what, what was, was that an unreasonable expectation Jesus had as, as disciples? The point is that he wanted them to come to him long before that point. They had to get desperate enough before they came. They had to give up on their own abilities to get themselves out of the, their problem before they would come. Jesus wants followers who recognize that he is able, that recognize that he is ruling over our lives just as he in his wisdom and perfect knowledge knows is best for us. And we don't have to panic and we don't have to fret but we, because we have Jesus in our boat with us. And we can be at peace. We can have that peace that passes understanding. That is peace that doesn't make any sense unless Jesus is in the picture. And when, that, when we have that kind of a remembering of God and his presence in our lives, then we can endure sufferings. Things happen in our lives, it's not, it's not the end of the world. You know, financial pressures crash into your lives like a car crashing into a building. And it's so easy just to say, what are we going to do now? But God knows. God has allowed this to happen. God knows our needs. He is not, his hands are not tied. He can And he can provide for us abundantly out of his glorious riches. And we need to humble ourselves before him. We need to go to him in thankful prayer. We need to make our request known. And we need to rest in him and trust that he knows what he's doing. And the same thing is true on every level of our lives with all the different areas that we experience of our sufferings. And Paul is a great example And it's so helpful for us to ask, what did Paul have that we don't have? He didn't have anything that we don't have. He had the Spirit. He had the Gospel. He had the same Lord. One thing Paul had, he had a past where he had been shown his own wickedness, his own inability to do things right in such a major way that it was perhaps a little easier for him to, in a situation, to realize that he couldn't handle this. 
Maybe some of us just haven't failed enough yet. Maybe we haven't gotten to that point where we are so quick to say, I can't do this as Peter, as Paul was. But otherwise, we have everything that Paul had. There's no reason that Paul, it wasn't that Paul was a better person, Paul was a murderer. He had, we have everything that he had. And this is the way, this is not just some extraordinary thing that every once in a while someone's supposed to live like this, to be able to be content even in hardships. This is normal Christian life. This is the way God wants his people to live. But of course, it all comes from him. It all comes from him. And therefore, let us go to him. As we come to the table this morning, we are going to Jesus, or we should be. And he is welcoming us and inviting us and giving himself to us, offering himself to us. Come and take and receive what the Lord unto yourself. Let's pray. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we praise you that you have shown us such mercy and that you have sent such help for us and been such a great helper for us. And dear Lord, we ask your forgiveness for all of our fretting, for all of our irritability, all of our anger, all the ways, Lord, we have failed to trust you. All the ways that we have doubted whether you're really going to help us or not. Oh, Lord, we want to be your children who let you be our Father. Who let you give us what we need at the right time. Even though, Lord, so often it seems to us that it should have come long ago. Help us to wait upon the Lord and find strength in waiting because we know that you, that no one trusts in the Lord in vain. And now, Lord, with joy, we come to your table to receive this gift, to receive your son Jesus in ceremonial form in this sacrament of the Lord's Supper. May every heart, O Lord, receive him and welcome him and feed upon him and be strengthened by him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.